Thank you for joining us for another episode of Baker Hosts Ad Nausea, a podcast series focusing on new and trending advertising issues with an emphasis on the FTC and NAD. I'm Leah Brave, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. We are once again joined by Amy Mudge and Daniel Kaufman, two partners from Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team. Together, they have decades of advertising experience and approach advertising issues from multiple perspectives. On today's episode of Ad Nauseam, Amy and Daniel cover online reviews, an issue that is increasingly on the radar for regulators and self-regulators. They will discuss a recent FTC case against the Bountiful Company, raising a novel review issue, and an NAD case involving a review website for teeth aligners. With that, welcome to Ad Nauseam, and let's turn it over to Amy and Daniel. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Ad Nauseum. I am Amy Mudge, and I am here with my cohort, Daniel Kaufman. And today, we're going to be talking about new developments in the area of consumer reviews. And we've been talking about consumer reviews for a long time as as a variant, really, of testimonial and endorsements, but made by real people as opposed to influencers or celebrities. It's become increasingly complex, increasingly nuanced. And we're going to talk about some, I think, first impression FTC case today and a couple of really interesting NAD cases that focus on review sites. I want to kick it off with that. I would like to understand how, Daniel, do you use consumer reviews? Do you read them? Do you write them? Do they play any role in your purchasing life? Yes, yes, and yes. Now, I, I am a big review reviewer. Before I make purchases, whether it's hotels, clothing, books, you know, whatever it might be, I am, am definitely obsessed with looking at reviews before making any sort of even insignificant purchase. I love hotel reviews in particular. I also really love clothing reviews that give you a sense of, is this a regular fit or is this like on the smaller side or larger size if I'm making an online clothing purchase? Incredibly helpful. So yeah, yeah, no, look, the world has changed dramatically in the past few decades. And to me, online reviews are a huge benefit of, of online commerce. Well, Daniel, you are a natty dresser all on your own. Do you share your opinions about your favorite online clothing purveyors or your favorite hotels with the world? No, I have guilt about that. I totally have guilt about that. I I totally consume lots of reviews, but I add nothing to the universe on my review thoughts or feelings. And it's something that's always in the back of my mind. You know, I stayed at a great hotel, a great restaurant. I should be online commenting about it and providing positive information. I just haven't done it. And maybe that should be a New Year's resolution for 2024. Well, one, that's months ahead. I got a plan. I got a plan. <laughs> Two, you have many personal failings, I think, that should be remedied ahead of, of leaving reviews. But I actually am the same way. I'm a prolific reader of reviews, particularly for restaurants, actually for anything. Yeah. I tend to be a negative Nelly. I tend to go sort to the bad reviews to see what people have to say. I find those sort of more interesting. But yeah, I'm not a review writer either. And I guess it's I mean, you, you and I have a lot of opinions, Daniel. <laughs> Who are these people writing reviews? That's the yeah. question. Uh, that's what I think about. Is this a unique niche group of people that feels compelled to share their every experience? And if so, part of me wants to thank them. And part of me wants to say, is your experience relevant to my experience? Right. The occasional review that I've written has either been because the experience has been 
so incredible, I felt I owed it to the seller to say something, or it's been so disastrous that I felt I had to tell the world about it. But it is sort of a very binary. Well, look, given our reactions, and, and these are our honest, heartfelt reactions, it's not surprising that regulators are looking at review practices. I mean, they are so important and they drive so much business and, and they're so integral to a lot of decision making that we do rely upon it for so many purchases. So good area of focus for regulators, I think, overall. Okay, so we just saw very recently the FTC giving redress in the Fashion Nova case involving suppression of online reviews. But I think you're going to review a different case. You're going to talk to us about the Bountiful Company case, which I am sort of stunned the FTC brought this case. I'm a little surprised it's settled as well. But tell us all about it. So it's a really interesting review case. And unlike the sort of review suppression cases, this one definitely is a little more complicated. So, you know, if a company is utilizing some sort of third-party selling platform, there's something called variation re- relationships. So if you're selling a substantially similar product, an old product that you have sold, you want to be able to rely upon those reviews as well for your new product. Look, people don't just focus on the quality of reviews, the number of reviews matter as well. So let's say you've been selling 500 milligrams of vitamin C and you have a a 100 unit version and a 500 unit version and you're launching a thousand unit version. It's the same product, you're just selling different amounts. The thousand units number of capsules should be able to rely upon reviews for the hundred capsules. It's the same product, just a different quantity. So the notion is if you have substantially similar products you should be able to rely upon the old reviews and group them together. And that's the concept behind it, which makes sense, but it does raise that question, how closely similar do the products have to be to be able to have this sort of variation relationship and rely upon the prior reviews? And what happens in the Bountiful case, and the FTC alleges that the variation relationship that the Bountiful company was relying on was not close enough to warrant incorporating the old reviews. And they go through a lot of different allegations here, talking about the older products and the new products, and make it clear that the formulations at issue were significantly different and didn't warrant that. And I think there's a really good example that they have for one of the products. There was a vitamin C gummy, and the company was trying to sort of get a variation relationship with a gummy, but it was a multivitamin. It wasn't just vitamin C. It was a multivitamin with all sorts of vitamins. And those are not substantially similar formulations. And the FTC, that's one of the examples they cite to. Now, the interesting thing, I think, about the complaint, I kind of wish it had been a little bit more specific because you sort of have to dig into the exhibits a little bit and dig in to see exactly what are the differences in the formulations. And I think the complaint could have provided a little more helpful information on what are the product differences that led to it not being a decent variation relationship. So I, I know this is all complicated and messy and confusing, but it's, it's really that core issue. Like how close do the products have to be in order to rely upon the, the reviews for the other products? Am I making any sense, Amy? Well, yeah. And I guess on the one hand, thank goodness the FTC didn't give more detailed guidance because then people may hire us to tell us what we think. But it is frustrating. And to me, I think this case really did come out of the blue. The way you've just described it, it almost sounds like the products have to satisfy that essentially equivalent product definition. 
And I just don't buy that it has to be the same formula, you know, in different sizes be listed together. I guess this is listed together. I think the idea is really, can you share reviews? Because the FTC called that in their, you know, they're great marketers now and they come up with these salacious titles for everything. I think they called this review hijacking. That's a great term. (laughs) It's a good term, but I just don't. We see this a lot, not when a company says, I have a dog of a product and I'm going to grab the product that people love and I'm going to move those reviews over here to my dogs. A lot of times we see this when somebody innovates, okay? So there's a product and then they make a new and improved product. Do you have to start over from day one, square one for reviews when you've made a product enhancement? Or can you use those older reviews? And I'm not even going to ask you. I'm going to tell you. I think the answer is yes, you can. Probably, based on this case, you need to have some kind of indicia that this review is on the earlier version of the product to somehow make that clear. But that's where we see this coming up a lot. And I actually think consumers are could be harmed if they're not given the opportunity to review the prior reviews of a, you know, substantially similar product. I'm just going to go back to the, what does it take to be a substantially similar product? Now, in this case, you know, the FTC, they do love finding bad documents and they certainly cite to a number of internal bad documents that, that do suggest that the company was aware they may have been sort of playing a little bit fast and loose, allegedly, with the review process. And and the complaint cites a few of these examples as well. But look, I think the fact that we're talking about sort of minutia of the review process really highlights how important reviews are to sort of commerce now. I mean, it it is such a driving force that these small distinctions are now meaningful to sort of consumer takeaway and and how consumers are going to purchase things. I mean, it's interesting. And and that happens to me when I look online, I'm like, well, there's only three reviews. Why am I going to pay attention to this? But if I see 300 reviews, that's a lot more meaningful to me. And I'm I'm a lot more comfortable that like 300 people provided comments and 90% are good. I'm, I'm golden. I can buy that thing. So what do you do if you're a new product, right? Like this is where it does get to be. I, th- I think the devil's in the details on this. And when I first read this, I said, oh, this is a one-off. This is weird. It's in the rulemaking. We're going to definitely see more on this. All right. Yeah. I do not want to give NAD short shrift. I'm going to talk in the few minutes we have left about a couple of cases about review websites. And the first one that I want to talk about is Mile Prep. This case came out of the NED a while ago, end of last year, but then Smile Prep lost and appealed the decision. And so we very recently got a decision out of NARB, and which, which essentially upheld the NAD in full. And in this case, this is a website that it's a whole website looking at teeth. And it evaluated products to, to straighten or improve your teeth. That is the be-all, end-all behind SmilePrep.com. And they wrote detailed reviews about these products. And they said that they later added affiliate links after the reviews were written. And they had sort of the standard affiliate marketing disclosure that said, trust us, trust us, all these reviews are honest. We do make a small commission from affiliate links, but they do not impede upon our editorial integrity. Something, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of of that. But the NED dug in a little bit and they found that Smile Prep didn't use the products that it was evaluating. It based its discussion of these products on what the manufacturer said about the products. Essentially what NED questioned is really whether a small publisher like this 
can ever really be independent since all of the revenue from this site came from these affiliates and is there any true way that you can have an editorial wall where somebody writes the review and somebody completely different without talking to the writer in any way shape or form adds those links and what i think is really interesting is this was a case that was brought by partner of smile prep and then they terminated the relationship and they really felt aggrieved and felt that other of its competitors that were paying this website money were getting better reviews, higher reviews. And that's why the case started. But I think NED is really called into question whether small publishers, whose really only means of revenue is affiliate revenue, whether they can ever be truly independent or whether the whole site always and consistently has to be called advertising. So size matters is what you're saying. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I, have no, I have no words. Yes. Yes, Daniel. In this case, size most decidedly matters. I'm not sure how Smile Prep comes out of this. I've checked. Their website is still up, but this is a hard one. And the other case I'd like to talk about briefly is a case involving Hello Magazine, a fine celebrity publication. But before I dive into that, Daniel, are you a reader of Celebrity Rags? So I, I do have a subscription to people, but I, I will say throughout law school and for decades, Entertainment Weekly was my jazz. My roommate and I at law school used to fight over the magazine when it came. So I'm a huge Entertainment Weekly fan. I guess it's available online only now, but I do miss having the physical Entertainment Weekly magazine. Oh, you got to have the magazine. You got to yeah. turn the pages. I cannot get on an airplane without People Magazine. Yes, I'm a all people all the time. And I, I do view People Magazine as critical professional reading in, in our area, since we have to know about celebrities, since our clients ask us about them all the time. I drew the line at Us Weekly. People was legit. Us Weekly. <laughs> Us Weekly was reprehensible. It's sort of where is the fine line that I drew but I do love me my People magazine once a week. It's my guilty pleasure. But this is about another publication. This is about Hello magazine. And there was an article about an eye cream and that this eye cream was promoted by a celebrity that Hello wrote about. And the NED opened a monitoring case to say, hey, wait a minute, this article you write about talking about this wonderful eye cream and this celebrity that's endorsing it looks suspiciously like an ad. We'd like to know if it is or not. And in this case, the NED looked at factors that it had previously articulated in its BuzzFeed case and basically walked through them. It found in this case that actually, even though the piece sort of looked like an ad, that it wasn't. And why wasn't it? The NED said that although the article discussed attributes of this product, the brand didn't pay for the content. The brand didn't influence what was said about the product nor did the brand separately promote the article to drive traffic to it. And this was one that NAD found that there was an editorial wall in between the writer of the content and later somebody on the business side coming and adding those affiliate links. Something else they found really interesting about this case is they referenced that, hey, we know celebrities get paid sometimes to endorse these products. And if we know that a celebrity is a paid ambassador for a product, 
We will make that clear as well in the article that we write. But this is one that NED said, you know what? It looks like from what Hello has told us, that appropriate wall is up between the business side and the editorial side. And so they administratively closed this case. I will say, I think we have not heard the end of evaluations of review sites. I know the FTC brought its Lend EDU case. I'm just going to look into my crystal ball and bet we're going to see more in this area. And I would advise folks to take a careful look at how they're engaging with and using these review websites to make sure that they that, that they feel comfortable about that paid relationship and whether it's disclosed. Yeah, look, I think the I mentioned the rulemaking they're doing right now on endorsements and reviews, and I think what they're saying in that space is very relevant to how they interpret the FTC Act. So these are practices they're going to keep digging into. I should just, as a caveat or as a disclosure, say that I did do the teeth straightening retainers last year. Magnificent results, though after like a few months of using it, I was having a rough go at it. <laughs> I think you lost weight too, right? Because you had to keep those things in all day long and you had to just take them out Except then I would take them out to eat and I would sort of overcompensate. So (laughs) we will end ad nauseum on this note. I also did teeth straightener several years ago, but my teeth are no longer straight because I did not wear my retainer. Listen to your mother, listen to your orthodontist and listen to Amy Mudge to say, if you want to keep your teeth straight, you have to wear that retainer. And with that life advice, thank you so much for joining (laughs) us. at Ad Nauseum. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Amy and Daniel. If you have any questions for Amy or Daniel, their contact information is in the show notes. For more information on the latest developments in ad law, visit our Attorneys Law blog at www.attorneyslawblog.com and check out all Ad Nauseum podcasts by subscribing to Baker Hosts wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.